Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. Thank you for joining me on my Truth Talk on the nature of the Bible. Now, I haven't written an article or produced a podcast on the nature of the Bible for over a decade, although I have included sections of the subject in two of my books, that's Truth is the Word and Prayer, Power and Proclamation. Now, this is not because it's not a very important subject, because it is. It's just that I have been preoccupied with two of my three doctrinal foundations, that being the centrality of Jesus and dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now, the authority of the Bible is my third foundation, and the nature of the Bible is an important subject because it's so little understood by many of today's Christians. That's why my third doctrinal foundation, as I've said, is the authority of the Bible. Authority can only be properly understood and appreciated if its nature is not misunderstood. So let me start with what the Bible isn't. When I use the word the Bible in an article, something like that, I do not usually capitalize the letter B. Now, this is contradictory to convention, but I currently do this after considerable thought over a long period. You see, to me, capitals signify personal names or places or types or category names, although used for special emphasis. And there's a quaint English word called capitonum. And I didn't even know how to pronounce it. C-A-P-I-T-O-N-Y-M, capitonum, which means a word that changes its meaning when it is capitalized. For instance, a rather frivolous little article and very contrived example of this is a turkey may march in Turkey in May or March. See, the words change their meaning quite clearly when there's a capital in them, when they start with a capital. I understand the word Bible as a capitonum. The word itself simply means book from the Greek biblos. But the Christian sacred scriptures are really a collection of books bound together in one cover. I believe that the scriptures are inspired, authoritative and trustworthy. And so my use of a lowercase b in the word Bible really does not indicate that I hold it in anything but the highest esteem. However, the Bible is not a person, let alone God. Most of us, myself included, use expressions like the Bible says, but we know full well that the Bible does not speak, or hear, or have any degree of self. What we mean by such expressions is that the Holy Spirit illuminates a passage of the Bible in a way that communicates with us and often speaks to our current situation. There are numerous uses of the phrase Word of God, is another example in the Bible, but these were penned way before the Bible itself, and so they cannot be referring to the Bible as we know it. For instance, Hebrews 4.12 states that the Word of God is living and active, but the context makes it absolutely clear that the author is referring to God's directly spoken word, and not to a collection of books that would, in some distant future, be called the Bible. The Bible is not the source of truth either, because Jesus is. And it is not revelation, but it is the means that God uses to reveal truth, and indeed himself, to us. And these are the reasons why I use a lowercase b for Bible. Now, bearing in mind 
this that I've just said, the Bible itself is not and may not be treated as an object of veneration. It's not a holy relic to be carried into a church service on a satin cushion, and it's not to be kissed, coddled, or protected from highlight pins and written notes. The Bible is not inerrant, and it does not claim this for itself. Inerrant, free of all error. It doesn't claim it. However, many Reformed and Evangelical theologians have made inerrancy the actual litmus test of true faith, and this is just wrong. Inerrancy is a word used to describe the concept of the error-free nature of the Bible. And if by error we mean that God made a mistake in allowing human authors to present certain things in irregular ways, then clearly the Bible is without error. If it were in error in this sense, then we could hardly regard it as inspired in all its parts. However, if we concede that the Bible contains elements that are factually inconsistent, or historically disprovable, or scientifically untenable, this does not mean that we hold parts of the Bible to be uninspired. It simply means that God purposed, or at least allowed, it to be recorded in this way. Now, we might not fully understand why he did, but the concept of inerrancy or inconsistency do not necessarily contradict a belief in divine inspiration. Seen in this light, we could legitimately say that God chose to allow the authors to express their humanity in the scriptural record. The Bible is a record of the perfect word of God in imperfect words of human beings. Moreover, people who lived in a particular age, you know, long, long ago, who thought in terms of the prevailing worldviews and scientific views and so on, recorded these imperfect words. So it should be no surprise to us then that the authors used pre-scientific concepts and flawed referencing and reporting methods. It's kind of obvious, right? Scholars refer to this as cultural conditioning, but it goes way beyond that. It goes to the subject of human frailty and limitation. Now, this would constitute a real problem for those who believe that God actually dictated the scriptures or directly impressed the thoughts on the minds of the scribes, which is tantamount to dictation. These anomalies that I've been speaking about, these apparent contradictions could, if admitted to, constitute a crisis of faith for those who hold such a narrow view of biblical inerrancy. Now, by narrow, I mean a definition of inerrancy requiring absolute factual accuracy, numeric or chronological precision, and religious theology, theological consistency. The Bible is also, on the other hand, not a magic book, nor only a record of what God deems to be the right and true. You see, there's some things in the Bible which are not models for us, and they're not right and true. He's giving us a, a frank and honest look at the frailty of humans and what they do wrong. And it certainly isn't a book of spells. So to lift a verse out of its context and then claim that God has said, so the matter is settled and then we just kind of use and stand on it and so on, no, that's ignorantly presumptuous. To speak out formula words and then claim that these so-called promises were almost like magic spells, you know, is just nonsense. Yeah, we, we pull a couple of words out of the Bible and we quote them often enough and we say, if I just say it this way, even the word, in the name of Jesus, if I kind of just say it 
at the end of something as a kind of a cultic add-on, then, you know, it's going to be wonderful and it's going to work. So equally, to treat, say, King David's misconduct, and he had a few, right? If we use those as warrants for our misbehavior, or if we take some of Peter's actions and words as models for us, then it's just plain misguided. So these are some descriptions of what the Bible is not, but what then is it? Well, the books of the Bible are a holy collaboration between God and the people he chose to work with. Just as Jesus Christ, the living word of God, is both man and God, so the scriptures are both human and divine production. They are the written word of God. The Bible is a compendium of many styles and genres, ranging from stories through poetry to teachings, and included in the mix are also histories, prophecies, wise sayings, and even apocalyptic visions. In addition, some books like Job or the Song of Songs just defy classification. Let us do. Some of the biblical characters in the, in the Bible are, are wicked. Some are simply flawed, while yet others are real saints. There are both positive and negative examples of character and behavior. And only sometimes does the author explain which aspects can be taken as models and which are warnings to us. The measurements, times, periods, and so on are not necessarily accurate as we would understand that word. For instance, the genealogies do not contain an exact chronological timeline. Sometimes they are arranged into groups for effect and stuff is left out. Or they leave out whole generations in order to make some kind of important point or other. So we cannot add back through the genealogies and conclude from that that Adam was created 6,000 years ago exactly. Some descriptions in the Bible are symbolic and not an accurate presentation of physical reality. For instance, the devil probably does not look like a huge red dragon confined to the end time for exactly 1,000 years. That's per Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3. Now, my understanding is that an enormous red dragon is actually an excellent symbol, symbolic description of the devil, and that 1,000 years represents the entire church age starting when Jesus restrained Satan at the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, it's obvious from all that I've said here that the Bible cannot be read and understood primarily as a theological diction, dictionary or as a chronological story or a collection of promises and magical mantras, Lord preserves. Instead, the Bible in its totality is a source of divine revelation concerning Jesus and his way of salvation. It is also the source of spiritual knowledge, advice, admonition, and encouragement. It is the written collection of writings that God uses to help us to come to know Jesus, to grow to be like him, and to help others to do likewise. It is rich and complex, yet relevant and meaningful to all generations, every generation of at least the last 1,600 years or so. It is an indispensable part of the Christian faith and can rightly be called the written word of God. Okay, so it's equally obvious from what I've said so far that we can only properly understand this marvelous book 
if we apply the principles of context, exhaustive reference, and Christocentricity. Context involves the interpretation of a biblical passage with reference to the history, geography, and culture of its original time of writing, and also with reference to its literary style and the logical flow of thought contained in the passages that both precede and follow it. Christocentricity means the interpretation of a passage with reference to what Jesus said, did, and revealed of the nature and character of the Godhead. Right, so let, lastly, let me deal with um, some practical applications of all of this. So given the importance of the Bible to faith and life, and its nature and purpose, we should at least consider the way we handle and use it. That's you and me. And here are some suggestions of how we may consider this. One, reflect on how you regard the Bible. Now, do you think of it as a source of truth or the primary means by which God reveals truth, human nature, and in fact himself? Two, ask yourself how you approach it. Is it a an article to be hallowed and treated physically as if it's divine? Or on the contrary, do you regard it as less than the written word of God and as relatively peripheral to your lived reality? Three, do you quote isolated texts as if they were little truth capsules or pills in themselves? Or speak out what you perceive as promises that apply to yourself and then you claim them, right? Or four, do you believe that when all facts are known, the scriptures in the original manuscript form and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical or life sciences. And lastly, fifth, do you truly believe that the Bible can only be truly understood when viewed through the lens of what Jesus said, did and revealed of the character and nature of the Godhead? Now, there are, of course, other questions we could consider, but these five are a jolly good start. The first question concerns the fundamental nature of the Bible, how we actually understand that. The second question concerns biblioidolatry, or its opposite, bibli, biblioagnosticism. <laughs> these are long words, and I'm not even sure if they exist, but they, they sounded good. But they simply mean either idolizing the Bible on the one hand or treating it with indifference on the other. The third question probes whether, deep down, you treat the Bible as a magical source book, which is something that Word of Faith Christians are rather apt to do. The fourth has to do with the misguided doctrine of biblical inerrancy as it's so often presented. And frankly, I would need another whole truth talk to explain this adequately. Finally, the fifth question tests your commitment to Jesus-centered Bible interpretation. Okay, so dear listener, if you think that this truth talk and the five questions which I've just gone through, and you think them through and ponder on them carefully, and then you will have an idea of what you maybe need to change in your life, or, or not. If you are an elder in a church that you lead, I know that the Holy Spirit will guide you in the process, as he always does for those who ask. I believe that of all of us, that we, we think about things that are important and we honestly consider them and reflect on them, as I've invited you to do in this truth talk. Then the Holy Spirit comes and often through the pages of Scripture will illuminate to us the truth of the matter. 
and we are subtly changed within our worldview and our understanding and our expectations, and we grow to be more like Jesus. God bless you all. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Truth Talks from Truth Is The Word Ministry. If you'd like to share your views, read up on related topics, or purchase one of Dr. Pepler's books, please visit his blog on truthistheword.com. And remember, truth is